0: Because it is through the local church and through the preaching of the gospel that there is salt and there is light in a society and in a world. Paul says, how will they hear without a preacher? And so the church represented by the preacher is to herald the gospel. How is that gospel to be heralded if there is not financial support for the ministry and the work of that particular local church? So you can see 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 has less to do about providing money for poor people and has far more to do with supporting the ministry of the local church and the perpetuation of the gospel. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, let's turn again to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, and, and I want to review from what we have spoken about thus far on this matter of Christian giving. I think I've entitled this, uh, Giving That Honors the Lord Jesus. And this morning, I want us to pick up uh, in 2 Corinthians 9, just for our reading, verses 6 through 11. So when you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. For those of you who haven't been with us, we've really gone through almost the entirety of these two chapters, not in any sort of detailed manner, but really just picking up uh, 10 principles of Christian giving from this very specific situation that I think has broad application for Christians today. But let me begin reading 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6. Let us hear the word of God. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is his holy word. Please be seated. Let us ask the Lord for his help as we look at our text this morning. Our Father, what a blessed time we have had already this morning, a rich time to sing these hymns, to hear from Your Word, the reading of it. But Lord, we agree with uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 89, that it is not merely the reading of the Word, but especially the preaching of the Word of God that is the effectual means to convert and convince sinners, to build us up into holiness, to comfort us. And so, Lord, we look to Your Word this morning for that comfort For the convincing and convicting power of the Holy Spirit, particularly on this matter of giving. Father, we know that ultimately it is your Spirit that must quicken us and convict us, Lord, to encourage us to be the living sacrifices that you have called us to be. Lord, in every area of our lives, our whole lives are to be lived as an act of worship to you. We aren't to hold any compartment of our lives away from you, but Father, we are to In every area of our lives, seek to honor you, even in this area of our financial giving. So bless our time as we conclude this study. We pray for your grace and for your help, and we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians, Then the Corinthians were a church that was located uh, in southern Greece. It was located on the province of Achaia. And uh, these Corinthian Christians had quite a relationship with the Apostle Paul. He writes them actually not just two letters, but at least three letters. One of the letters that he writes to them is not found in sacred scripture. It's a lost letter, we could call it. But we know that he interacted with the Corinthians on a, a number of different issues. It's important to understand that although the Corinthian assembly had some glaring issues regarding their misunderstanding of the spiritual gifts, their misunderstanding of the way the Holy Spirit operated. There was obviously some level of pride. Uh, Paul would tell them that knowledge puffeth up. There was an issue of them not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a a proper manner. He, He urges them to examine themselves to make sure they're doing that in the right way. All of that is true, and we have a tendency to pick on the Corinthians because of some of their glaring faults, but... The reality is, is that this was a fairly strong congregation. It was a group of, of Christians who loved the Lord. They had their issues. But if you go back all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is the way Paul addresses them. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosethnes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These were those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were those called to be saints together in the body of Christ. Paul considered himself a brother with these saints. And uh, the reality was that these Corinthians had promised to be the first givers of this collection that Paul was taking up a collection of money that was uh, going to be carried to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was located in another province altogether, the province of Judea. These Corinthians, mark this, were Gentile Christians. And they were the first ones to offer up financial support for the poor saints in Jerusalem. That would have been Jewish Christians. Everyone knew that in the day and age in which the Apostle Paul lived that Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews. But in an effort to show their joint love for Christ and the fact that they were part of the one body of Christ, Paul the Jew, now converted to Christ, calls upon these Corinthians, these Gentile converts to Christ, to give for the relief of these poor Jewish saints in Judea. That is the context in which he is urging these Corinthians To now give the money they promised to give. And why is he spending two chapters to do this? Well, because there's something else that's going on here. There were false teachers who came to the Corinthians and said that Paul was a false apostle. You can't trust what Paul says. One of the things that they said was, Paul is just after the money. Paul is just after the money. Paul writes to say, I'm not after the money. I have given my life for the ministry. I have been beaten. I have been shipwrecked. I, I, I am a living sacrifice to Christ. I don't even like to talk about money matters. I'm not after the money. You know my heart. You understand my ministry to you, Corinthians. Don't believe those false apostles, those super apostles, those false teachers that Are incriminating my name. So their desire to give had been stalled by the lie that Paul was after money. And Paul said, no, this isn't an issue of me being after money. This is an issue of providing for other saints, believers in the body of Christ. You promised to give to this collection. I'm sending Titus to collect it, and I expect you to give to this offering. It's not for me, it's for the other saints. Now it is true in the context of the first century, and we talked about this, no need to go into detail here this morning, that uh, these saints in Jerusalem were Christians of Jewish ethnicity who had been dispersed previously. They had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and when they were there, they went there as Orthodox, devout Jews, and they heard the Apostle Peter preach the gospel. They heard that the Messiah had come, he had been crucified, he had been resurrected, he ascended to the right hand. Testimony of the Apostle Peter. They repented of their sins. They were convinced of all the passages that Peter preached from in the Old Testament. They were convinced the Messiah had come and they were convinced that now they needed to worship this Messiah. They didn't want to return to their foreign lands, which really were their homes for generations, but they didn't want to return there because it wasn't their true home. Jerusalem was their true home. And even more important than that, this is where the true family of God was. Those Jews back in their pagan lands were rejectors of Christ. And so to return back to their pagan lands would be to return back to a synagogue that didn't recognize the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they wanted to stay in Jerusalem, but the problem was their job was back home. Their home was back home. They had no place to live. They had no place to work. And so the apostles really had a burden on their hands. And this gave rise to the ministry of deacon where the apostles said, we need to devote ourselves to the study of the word of God and to prayer. Our job is to teach you the word of God, to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, to encourage you to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach this word to you. We're going to have these deacons who will come and they will sort of meet the physical needs. And so they sort of pulled their money together They shared, they had everything in common, the book of Acts tells us. They sold uh, their properties, the wealthy people in the church, and from the proceeds of that real estate, they began to distribute these funds, taking in these people, these families who had no place to go out of love and out of service. But soon that money ran out. And so Paul is saying, look, this is an issue not so much of providing for poor people, people that don't have homes, this isn't an issue of, trying to encourage a welfare state or some sort of socialism or Marxism. This isn't redistribution of the wealth because the poor really deserve to have what the rich have. No, 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 no. What this is about is the fact that if you do not provide this money for the poor saints in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem will disband. It will no longer be in existence. The very witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. The testimony of the gospel Because it is through the local church and through the preaching of the gospel that there is salt and there is light in a society and in a world. Paul says, how will they hear without a preacher? And so the church represented by the preacher is to herald the gospel. How is that gospel to be heralded? if there is not financial support for the ministry and the work of that particular local church. So you can see, and if you've been with us, you can see where we're going with this. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 has less to do about providing money for poor people and has far more to do with supporting the ministry of the local church and the perpetuation of the gospel. The perpetuation of the church for succeeding generations so that the proclamation of the gospel can go on. So that this promise, which is for you and your children, can continue generationally. And that generationally, that local church can have an impact upon that particular society and culture in which God has sovereignly placed it. Paul is saying, look, you cannot merely be concerned about your church in Corinth and the influence you have you need to be concerned about the church in Jerusalem you need to be concerned about the growth of the church and the growth of the gospel in the world because Jesus has ascended he is ruling and reigning over all things and he is calling all things and all people in submission to himself and apart from the existence of local churches there is no manifestation of the power and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth So that is the central issue. And with that as sort of our proposition, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to pull out 10 principles. Now I'm just going to go over quickly. I promise quickly this morning what we have looked at so far. Number one, giving that honors the Lord, we see in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, is an overflow of the grace of God put upon us and put into us. Paul opens here in chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 to speak about The grace of God, verse 1, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now again, in the context, Paul is appealing to those in Macedonia, that is northern Greece, who have already given to this offering. And he's saying, Corinthians, you've heard of the grace of God that was among those churches. They gave to this offering, and he's trying to encourage the Corinthians to give to it. But he says it's the grace of God that was among them. We could say the grace of God that was in them, the reality of God's grace coming to them through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, them being saved from their sins, this gospel of grace that was among them and in their hearts and a reality in their lives was the very thing that motivated them to give. And that's the first basic principle. If your life is going to be marked by financial giving that honors the Lord, it will be an overflow of the grace of God upon you and put into you. The greatest givers will be those who are most grateful for the gospel. Not everyone will give the same amount because not everyone makes the same amount of money. But proportionately, the greatest givers are expressing the depth of their gratitude. Giving is an overflow of the grace of God upon you and the grace of God put into you. Very basic principle. Principle number two giving that honors the lord is also on par with the foundational virtues of christianity we saw this in verses five through seven paul says that you excel in everything verse seven like the virtues of faith speech knowledge earnestness and he says see that you excel in this act of grace as well the act of grace being giving to the collection to relieve the poor saints in jerusalem Paul appeals here to the basic foundational Christian virtues of faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness. He says, Corinthians, you have all of these things. In some ways, you are a model church. In some ways, because you have these basic Christian virtues. How can you neglect the basic Christian virtue of giving? Excel in this act of grace also. Giving financially to the Lord's work is basic to Christianity. It is Christianity 101. It is a very natural thing to want to give of our resources to the Lord's work because we've been saved through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes just as naturally to us as demonstrating faith. It comes just as naturally to us as studying the doctrine or the speech of the Word of God and having knowledge and understanding put there by the Holy Spirit. It is a natural inclination for a believer to give. It is on par with the foundational virtues of Christianity. It is not extra and above and beyond. It is a moral obligation to give, foundational to what it means to be a virtuous Christian. Principle number three was then found in verses 8 and 9. Giving that honors the Lord is also done by considering Christ's self-giving incarnation. Paul says in verse 8, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul doesn't appeal to some tithe principle to say you need to give this certain percentage. In fact, Paul doesn't even command them to give. He says this is so natural for a Christian that I trust if you're a true Christian, you'll have the earnestness that you need to give. And he says in verse 9, Here's the standard, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The tithe wasn't the standard, Christ was the standard. Christ didn't just give part of his life, Christ gave all of his life and so Paul is saying look I don't need to command you to do what you know you need to do. If Christ would give of himself in this way, he is our example of the sort of giving that ought to mark your life. And any sort of giving that honors the Lord will always take into consideration Christ's self-giving incarnation. That sort of removes the argument of what percentage you need to give. You may give a different percentage than someone else. That's not the issue. The issue is not how little do I have to give, but how much could I hold back after all that Christ has done for me through his self-giving incarnation. That then took us to principle number four, and we put it this way, giving that honors the Lord is given according to one's particular means proportionately. We read here in verse 10, in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you who year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing out of what you have. That is out of what your means are. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So Paul is saying here, I'm not asking you to give something you don't have. I'm not asking you to go in debt. I'm not asking you to give So much money that you can't meet the needs of yourself or of your family. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 that someone who doesn't provide for the needs of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. We aren't to violate one set of scripture in order to obey another set of scripture. You aren't to go in debt. You aren't to give all of your money as if that's the most spiritual thing to do. You are to give according to your particular means proportionately. You are to set aside, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, money on the first day of the week. There is to be a section of money, a percentage of money, a partial of, parcel of money that you set aside regularly, and it's going to be given out of your means. Not out of what you don't have, but what out, of, from out of what the Lord has given you proportionately. And that took us to principle five. Giving that honors the Lord is never equal in either total amount or percentage from one person to another. Verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but it is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. I want equity across the board. This is not redistribution of the wealth um, that that everyone needs to have equal amount of money in the church. That's not at all what Paul is teaching, but he's saying at the present time, these Jewish Christians are in need. Can you supply their need? Because the tables may be reversed in the future. This is the present, but in the future, maybe you will have a need. Maybe your church will have a need and and they won't be in destitute circumstances and then they'll be able to give to you. It's a give and take sort of situation. Our giving is not equal either in total amount or percentage from one person to another. Not everyone's going to give the same amount. And so church leaders need to be very careful not to hold an unreasonable standard above their own people. A church that is in another continent of the world, say a poor country in Africa, is not to overburden their people, but a wealthy congregation Let's say in the United States, who can give more, should give more. It's never equal in either total amount or percentage from one person to another. And then principle six, giving that honors the Lord, is always monitored by prudence and accountability. And this is what we looked at last week. It's the last point we looked at last week. And this sort of, we're halfway through now, shifts gears to really speak more broadly in verses 16 through 24 about the fact that Paul wants accountability. Paul appointed Titus, we read in these verses, and another brother, we don't know his name, but he was such a well-known brother that Paul just refers to him as a brother. They knew his identity, he was trustworthy, and Paul essentially says, look, I have an obligation as a preacher to ask you to give, but I really don't want anything to do with this. I've put other people in charge of this. They're going to come to you. They're going to collect this money. I don't want to have my hands on this money. I don't want any false accusations. I don't want to be misrepresented. I'm not in the ministry for the money. So Paul monitored the collection of this offering with prudence and accountability. Just a general principle. That's how every church budget should operate with prudence and spending, accountability, people that are competent and knowing how to take in funds, how to spend those funds How many ministries have been destroyed because of a mismanagement of money or a misappropriation of money? I mentioned to you last week it can happen anywhere. It happened in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. His very ministry was scandalized by Judas who used to pilfer from the pot and then betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. So if it can happen in the ministry of the Lord, it can happen in the most orthodox of ministries when there is not prudence and accountability you don't ever want the issue of money to scar or to mar a ministry and that's why I said to you on a very personal level I don't even like preaching on this issue there is nothing that I would rather not preach on than the matter of giving because you can come across arrogant or you can come across as if you're you're trying to feed yourself and your own interests Paul says look I'm obligated to mention this. I'm obligated to teach on it. I'm obligated to encourage you. But after that, I want nothing to do with it. Titus is coming with another brother. He'll handle it. I trust him. You should trust him. Let's move on. That's how Paul dealt with it. Now that takes us to the seventh principle, giving that honors the Lord. Number seven, um, let me put it this way, must seek to bring glory to Christ. It must seek to bring glory to Christ. Notice with me there in verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested. This is the other brother. He has a good reputation and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. Notice he calls them the glory of Christ. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the very glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Paul describes this offering being collected. He describes these messengers, Titus and this other brother, as men sent in charge of it as a matter of the glory of Christ. Giving is a matter of the glory of Christ. That's the language that Paul uses, really astounding language. Any sort of collection of any funds is to be done to the glory of Christ. It glorifies Christ. That would make sense. Because the very language that is used to describe the giving of our Lord is economic terminology. Back in verse nine, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the analogy: that though he was rich, that is rich with the glories of heaven, yet for your sake he became poor. He he he, he put on himself the the rags of a man, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We'll look at this a little bit more and in more detail this evening. But that sort of metaphorical language of economic poverty and economic wealth is the language that's used to describe the gospel. It would make sense then that when we talk about money, giving to the work of the Lord, giving to the kingdom of the Lord, that this is a matter of the glory of Christ. This is something that Christ preoccupied himself in, he gave of the riches of his glory. To us, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, we are joint heirs with Christ. We receive part of the inheritance that was given to him by the Father. We share in that. So when we give, we ask that simple question, is our giving glorifying Christ? Is our giving glorifying Christ? It's really what it boils down to. I don't want you to ask what percentage should I give? I don't want you to ask how much is this person giving and then try to compare it. I want you ultimately to ask is what I'm giving to the Lord glorifying to Him? And if you put a penny in the offering plate determining that that glorifies the Lord that's on your conscience. If you put a million dollars in and you're convinced that glorifies the Lord in your conscience. But you must be fully assured That Christ is receiving the glory. Both in the amount, that is how much, and the attitude. What is motivating it? What are you giving to? Maybe it's not giving to the local church. Maybe it's giving to some other ministry or some other need somewhere else. Does it glorify Christ? Does your giving glorify Christ? Is it elevating the gospel? is, Is it perpetuating the gospel? If it's not, then you shouldn't give to it. All giving must seek to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That sort of really sums it up. Really sums up what motivates our giving. That takes us now to an eighth principle. Giving that honors the Lord. We see now in chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. Giving that honors the Lord involves stepping up and being ready when a need arises stepping up and being ready when a need arises. I know I've not alliterated my points and that's thrown you all off, so I want to repeat these points as much as I can because they're full sentences. They're like Puritan sermons. Giving that honors the Lord, number nine, involves stepping up and being ready when a need arises. Notice verse one of chapter nine. Paul says, this ministry of the saints that I'm writing about, this is, I'm just repeating myself. Because, verse 2, I know your readiness, of which I boasted about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So this is, you have to wrap your mind around this, Paul bragged to the Macedonians, who were in northern Greece, regarding those in southern Greece, that is the Corinthians located on the province of Achaia, due to their readiness, The Corinthians were the first ones ready to give, but now they had stalled in their giving because false teachers accused Paul of being after money. And so Paul says in verse 3, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you to those in in Macedonia may prove not empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Paul wants to ensure, as they began with this readiness, And then he brags about them to those in Macedonia. And those in Macedonia give. And he bragged to those in Macedonia about the Corinthians who gave. And the Macedonians gave of all their money. And they they gave out of their poverty. And now the Corinthians still haven't given. They've just made a promise to give. Have you ever been in a church that had the little envelopes where you make a promise? Well, it's not exactly what happened. But the Corinthians promised. And Paul went to the Macedonians and he said, look, the Corinthians are giving, why aren't you? So the Macedonians gave, and now the Corinthians still haven't given. And Paul says, look, I bragged on you. You said you were ready. You made a promise. You've not followed through. So Paul had first boasted to the north about the south's readiness so that the north would have readiness, but now he's urging the south to continue being ready to give so the north won't feel like... They were taken advantage of by the South or by Paul. Paul says, This is a matter of my ministry reputation. You said you would give. These poor saints in Macedonia have given, and you still haven't give, given? This looks hypocritical. This is not good optics. It looks really bad. You said you would give, you said you were ready to give. First in line, pull the trigger give verse 4 otherwise if some macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready we would be humiliated to say nothing of you you'll be humiliated too for being so confident saying oh we have all this money we're going to give and then you don't give it So I thought it necessary, verse 5, to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. By the way, as this letter comes to you, I've already sent the brothers who are coming to collect it, so you better have it ready. It's really amazing, the wisdom of the Apostle Paul. He said back in chapter 8 and verse 8, I say this not as a command, and yet he says, I'm sending these brothers to you, have that collection ready when I come the gentleness, the wisdom. Because to Paul, this was a matter of the gospel. To Paul, this was a matter of what was foundational to a true Christian, being willing to give. He's not going to place upon their conscience a certain percentage necessarily, at least not in this passage. He's not going to say, you need to give a certain amount. But he is going to say, look, you need to do this. And he's going to push them to do that to the glory of Christ. Well, that takes us now to a ninth principle, an important principle. Giving that honors the Lord Jesus Christ is an investment. It is an investment that yields a harvest from God, verses 6 through 11 of chapter 9. Now, here we need to be very, very careful. This passage has been distorted. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in general has by those who hold to some sort of social gospel, Or we could call them closet Marxists, closet socialists. Another word for that, I guess, could be Democrats. But uh, those that hold some sort of social kind of gospel, this is what they say. You know what the gospel really is about? Jesus was rich and he became poor, he had no place to lay his head. Judas stole from him, he was poor poor foxes have holes birds of air have nests son of man has nowhere to lay his head the true gospel is about selling all your possessions and giving it to the poor the true gospel is about providing for the poor you want to be a true christian you want to truly honor god let's redistribute the wealth why are you holding on to that materialism that is a social gospel it's not the true gospel it's not the gospel paul preached People will use this passage to teach that. People will also use this passage to teach a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. That's one you're probably more familiar with in our own day. Notice verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will, Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The distortion of these verses would say, give a little bit of your seed money and it will grow. And God will make you wealthy, prosperous. We reject that. We reject that out of hand and we reject it with spit coming out of our mouths because it is such a distortion of what the Word of God teaches. However, the principle that they use is a biblical principle. They just pervert it and abuse it. So let's look at this principle in its biblical form. Let's look at the investment, first of all, verses 6 and 7. This teaches us we will reap what we sow in our investment. Notice verse 6. The point is this. Here's what I'm getting to. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So sowing, the sowing of seed, farming, is an illustration of giving. When we sow money to the Lord's work in the church, we can expect to reap something. What do we reap? I'm glad you asked. Here's the answer. We reap a great harvest. This is what the Bible teaches which is proportionate to the amount we invested. If you invest a lot, the Bible says you'll get a lot back. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, if you just pluck that principle out, that's how you get a health wealth gospel. But if you keep it in there and balance it out with the other principles, you understand Paul is not telling you to do what health wealth preachers are telling you to do. You aren't to, you're to give out of your means. You aren't to give what you don't have. You're to give after you have met the needs of your Or You're worse than an unbeliever. You're to owe, man, owe no man anything. Get out of your debts. But there's still this principle. The more you give, the more God will bless. So we read, for example, in Proverbs chapter 11. You can turn back there. Proverbs chapter 11 uh, this this principle really comes up multiple times. Proverbs 11, verse 24, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should ha- give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. It's the same exact principle. It's the, it's the principle of whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. How much do you sow? Some would say a 10% tithe. I'm not prepared to say you're morally obligated to tithe 10%, but I am prepared to say this is now the third or fourth time the Apostle Paul has used Old Testament language to inform our giving. Here he's clearly borrowing from Proverbs 11 one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. An Old Testament principle. The Old Testament has something to teach us here regarding giving. In uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 38, Jesus uses this same principle. You're perhaps more familiar with this. It's in the context of judging. But Jesus says this in Luke 6.38, "...Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you." This is a a farming analogy of carrying an overflow of grain in one's robe. Held up. Jesus says, "...Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap." You have so much grain in your lap, you won't know what to do with it. For with the measure you use it, it would be measured back to you. So again, a farming analogy of harvesting a crop. Now in the context of Luke chapter 6, notice verse 37. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. So in this context, it's the same analogy of an overflow of grain, but it is applied to that of judging. Here's the principle. You judge harshly, God will judge you harshly. You judge mercifully, God will judge you mercifully. It's a basic, fixed proverb and principle. You want another one? I'll give you another one. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also what? Reap. What we sow, we reap. Let me put it to you in common vernacular. The more you put into something, the more you get out of it, okay? That's true with everything in life. It's true with everything in life. I tell my soccer players this all the time, and I tell parents this too. They come and they say, oh, little Johnny's not getting the playing time I want little Johnny to get. And I always say, I don't determine playing time. The player determines the playing time. What they put into practice is what they will get out. They invest a lot, they work hard, they will be rewarded. It's a fixed principle. It's not something I'm in control of. God says, look, verse 6, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. It's a fixed principle. It's true with everything in life. Everything in life. And therefore, it's also true with respect to our financial giving. That's Paul's point. The word bountifully is the Greek word from which we get the English word eulogy. A, a eulogy is something we give at a funeral, but the word eulogy really means a blessing. It really means a blessing. So here's Paul's point giving that's done with a gracious desire to bless others or to bless the work of the Lord will in turn receive a harvest of genuine, generous blessing from God. Let me give you another principle Proverbs 3 Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here's another principle, Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. In fact, the Old Testament mentions this, the end of the Old Testament. Turn back with me to Malachi chapter 3. We've looked at this in previous studies, but... In this context, uh, God accuses Israel of robbing God. And of course, uh, they sort of snarkily say to God, How have we robbed you? And um, God says to them at the end of verse 8, Malachi 3 8, Here's how you've robbed me in your tithes and contributions. You therefore, verse 9, are cursed with a curse. What did Proverbs 28 say? Whoever gives to the poor will not be in one, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. God says, you've not given what you should give, and therefore I'm cursing you, Israel. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then notice this, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse... That there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Well, that sounds a lot like Proverbs 3 Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. God gives a generous return on the amount we invest. If one invests sparingly, he reaps sparingly. If one invests bountifully or blessedly, he will receive blessedly from God. But the amount of our investment is not all that matters, also our attitude. Notice verse 7 back in 2 Corinthians 9. Paul returns, he says... Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, which is it, Paul? Are we obligated to give or not? How much do we give? Paul says, I'm not going to say this to you as a command, but by the way, I'm sending people there to collect the offering you need to give. You need to decide in your heart how much you give, but you need to give. But make sure you're not giving reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Well, which is it? Is it grace-giving or is it tithing? That's the modern-day debate. Well, it interests you to know that the New Testament mentions tithing in the book of Hebrews, and it also mentions this sort of cheerful giving, not under compulsion, not reluctantly. It also is true that the Old Testament mentions tithing, But it also mentions giving that is from the heart. Turn back with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 25, and I'll show this to you. Both, quote-unquote, grace-giving and tithing are in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. Here in Exodus, chapter 25, this is contributions being raised for the sanctuary of the Lord. And the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 25, 1, going into verse 2, "...speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution." from every man, notice this, whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So there is an established tithe, but when it came to the sanctuary of the Lord, it seems like God's gone off script here all of a sudden. And he says, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. It's interesting there. In both Testaments, there's the mentioning of a tithe and this mentioning of giving from our hearts, What we've decided in our heart, or as verse 7 says, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver, not grudgingly, that is not with sorrow or sadness, but with happiness. Not under compulsion, not because some legalistic standard or percentage has been pressed upon you to the point that now you're doing it just because someone wants you to do it, because you feel the pressure to do it. That's not the type of giving God honors, He honors the cheerful giver. The word cheerful there is from where we get the word hilarious. God loves a giver who can't help but smile when they give. They give willingly to the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver. There's a special demonstration of God's love on a person who gives with joy. And what is the demonstration of that special love? It is a great blessing for the seed that they have sown. You want a great blessing from God? Don't so sparingly, but so bountifully. Again, balance with all those principles Paul has mentioned in these two chapters, not plucking that principle out and abusing it, but understanding that it is there. This is how all of life works. The harder you work, the more money you will earn. The harder you work, the more satisfaction you will get. There is is a profit that comes from an investment That's what we are to do, invest in the kingdom of God. But what is the return? Well, notice in more detail, verse 8, here's how God returns to you. In general, it's a blessing, but here's what it'll look like. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God demonstrates his love by providing grace. He makes grace abound. Now, in the context, grace is spoken about in materialistic terms. The act of grace was the giving of this physical money. So I think here in verse 8, the grace that abounds is a material grace. God gives back, out of the abundance of His riches, a material harvest. So that, having all sufficiency, in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. All of your needs will be met. Having all sufficiency. You will sufficiently have what you need when you faithfully give to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Your needs will be met. An abundance for every good work will result in that, which means opportunities to give more. So Paul's not saying, I'm going to bless you in return so that you can satisfy your selfish needs so that you can operate under a spiritual version of a get-rich-quick scheme. That's not what this is about. That's the health-wealth gospel. No, this is so that you have an abundance for more work. I give back to you so you can give more. Notice verse 9, as it is written, He is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Another Old Testament principle, now Paul's quoting from Psalm 112 in verse 9, and he says, as it is written. In other words, this isn't anything new. The principle that I'm giving you that is informing, giving, is not something new. It comes from the Bible. It comes from the Old Testament. Since the generous, cheerful giver scatters abroad, here is the point. His money, he scatters his money abroad, and he gives it to the poor, that's the example that is used because that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing, giving money to the poor, but as I said, it can be applied to the work of the Lord in general because also they were giving to the church. What happens? That person's righteousness, the giver's righteousness, endures forever. It endures forever. will give you sort of an example of this. Many of you know that we visit West Virginia annually and one of the key things that I do is attend a, a West Virginia football game. And I remember one of the games that we attended up there since we've lived here, we went back. We had uh, rose early in the morning and we, we had we had stopped to, to get gasoline and we went into the gas station and I noticed the headline of the newspaper said that uh, a man by the name of Mylan Puskar had passed away. Well, that was a significant thing because Mylan Puskar had donated a ton of money to West Virginia University and in fact... Mountaineer Field is where they play football, but they renamed the stadium Milan Puskar Field in honor of him because he gave all of this money. We see that sort of thing happening all the time. People give a lot of money and their righteousness endures. Their legacy endures. Their name continues. People won't forget in time, here's the point, and God won't forget in eternity the type of giving that is a monument to the Lord so he who scatters his seed, his righteousness endures forever. Building his case even more, Paul continues in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food will supply, multiply your seed for sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is a quotation from Isaiah 55:10. You're familiar with that. God produces rain from heaven, and that rain produces a harvest. And in Isaiah chapter 55, um, that sort of illustration is being used for the preaching of the gospel. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I think it's very interesting and I don't think it's accidental that Paul would use Isaiah 55, a text that's talking about the preaching of the gospel, that God will water the growth of the gospel so that a harvest is produced. Paul uses that very passage to speak about financial giving. To say this, apart from financial giving, how will the gospel go out? How will it go out? How will there be a harvest? But when it happens, there's this cycle that happens in farming. Rain produces a harvest. A harvest produces money. Money produces more seed that is bought. Seed that is planted results in more harvest and more money. You can't outgive God. And the more you give, the more bountifully you give, the more God will give back to you so you can give more back. That's the point. And your needs are met in the process. You don't ever have to worry about being in want. All your sufficient needs will be met. He even says here, bread for food. That's the present. God will provide for you in the present and he'll multiply your seed for sowing. That's the future. So that you sow more money for more needs to be met. God gave the sower what he gave to him from the beginning. He gives it back to him with the view that he'll give more seed for sowing when the next season comes around. And in this way, the cycle of God's blessing never ends. The generous giver is enriched as verse 11 says in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As I said this is not the prosperity gospel because we've understood a correct interpretation of verses 6 through 11 within the context and balanced out by the other principles. You aren't to give more than what you have. You aren't to give to put yourself in debt. You aren't to get as sort of a magical formula that if you give, you rub the genie in the bottle and God will give you whatever you want, make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, that's not it at all. The point, though, is this. You give to the Lord sparingly, you'll get a sparing blessing. You give bountifully, the Lord will not only meet all of your needs, but he'll give you enough money that you're able to give more for the perpetuation of the gospel. God is glorified in that. Your needs are met in that. And the gospel is put on full display. Clear relationship between our giving to the Lord and His giving back to us. Romans 12 calls us to be living sacrifices. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says that Jesus was that sacrifice. Here's the cycle God gave Himself to us. We give ourselves back to Him. He gives Himself back to us with a great blessing. We can never outgive God the joy in giving. And that naturally leads us to a final principle. What have we seen? Giving that honors the Lord, number one, is an overflow of the grace of God upon us and put into us. Number two, it's on par with the foundational virtues of Christianity. Number three, it's done by considering Christ's self-giving incarnation. Four, it's given according to one's particular means proportionately. Fifth, it's never equal either in total amount or percentage from one person to another. Sixth, it's monitored by prudence and accountability. Seventh, it must seek to bring glory to Christ. Eighth, it involves stepping up and being ready when a need arises. Ninth, it involves stepping up and being ready when uh, a need arises. Number ten, it is an act, oh, I'm sorry, number nine is, is that it is an act of investment that produces a return. And number ten, it is an act of worship to God. Let's just look at this quickly, verses 12 through 15, and we'll be done. He says uh, at the end of verse 11, it produces thanksgiving to God. Here in verse 12, he says it's an overflow in many thanksgivings to God, this offering is. He says in verse 13 that it will glorify God. He says um, in verse 15, it's an inexpressible gift, it's, a, it's an act of worship. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. Here is the principle and the precedent. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. I don't want to, when I come, Paul says, burn you about how much money you should give. Set a certain percentage aside and and give that. Have the offering ready each Lord's Day. Why? Because this is an act of worship to God. This is a matter of thanksgiving to God. Verse 11, it's, it's a matter of Thanksgiving to God, verse 12. It's a matter of glorifying God, verse 13. It's a matter of thanks to God, verse 15, an inexpressible gift. Here is the point our giving is not simply a cash transaction. There's far more going on here. It represents, as verse 13 says, the confession of the gospel of Christ. We do it because we've confessed the gospel of Christ. We love the gospel. We want the gospel to be proclaimed in all the world. It's worship of Christ, it's worship of our Lord. It's reflective of our desire to see the work of the Lord go on. So we are to give in a way that honors the Lord. We're to give trustingly. If we sow, we'll reap we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. If we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. We're to give trustingly. We're to give regularly on the first day of the week. We're to give willingly, understanding what Christ has done for us, understanding that we give from a willing heart cheerfully. We're to give proportionately. You need to determine how much that is. We have Old Testament principles of a tithe that's repeated not just in Mosaic Law, but came even before Mosaic Law. Abraham gave a tenth, Jacob gave a tenth, but you need to decide how much you need to give. We give trustingly, regularly, willingly, proportionately, and most of all, we are to give naturally. This this is a natural expression of our devotion and our love for God. Now, with all that being said, I want to say one more thing. I don't care if I ever preach another message on giving. Because I think when it's preached on too much, the point is missed. We're under obligation to give our whole lives to the Lord. Everything. It's not just finances. It's everything. You're to give your spiritual gift to the Lord. You're to give your time to the Lord. You're to give your energy to the Lord. Your whole life is an act of worship to God. So don't use money as an excuse not to give him anything else. You owe him everything. Sometimes the easiest thing in the world to do is to write a check and forget about it. Especially if we're not giving enough where we see the difference in our bank account. Don't do that. Give in every area of your life, but don't forsake the matter of financial giving. It's basic, basic, basic to the Christian life. In many ways, it's one of the most natural things we could do. God has blessed us. We want to bless him, give back to him because really, he owns everything, right? It's all his anyway. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for clarity of your word. Lord, the depth of your word which gives us so many principles from which to draw upon. Lord, it it can be uneasy speaking about this matter of financial giving to the lord's work but lord i trust that because it's in scripture we have to preach it we have to teach it we have to mention it we have to be willing to speak about it because we care about the church we care about the proclamation of the gospel lord we thank you that you have in your grace and in the overflow of your mercy provided the opportunity for this very church to be established You have met our needs from the beginning. You have given above and beyond anything that we deserve. You continue to do this. You do it through your people who are obedient and love you and serve you. And I thank you, Lord, for a a congregation that gives and gives heartily and joyfully. Lord, we ask that you would bless the ministry of this church. We can't give to every charity. We can't give to every church. We have an obligation to give to this church and we have an obligation to pray that you would use the ministry of the word from this pulpit in our community, in our context for your glory. So Lord, we pray you would do that. We pray you would bless that. Help us to give of ourselves, to give of our finances and watch you work and bless us in a way that is beyond anything we could possibly expect. Help us to know that if we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we will also reap bountifully. That's what we want. That's what we pray for. Bless us, Lord. Now as we sing this um, hymn of response, seal these truths to our hearts by your blessed Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.